Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. Well, hey, good morning. Come on now. It's 9.30 in the morning. You've been up for, what, four or five hours already? Good morning. Hey, everybody watching online with us, good morning. Can we welcome those online again? And hey, if you're online, here's what I want you to do. We can't hear you or see you, but just type in hey in the comments. So you're saying hi to everybody in here as well. But hey, we are uh, in week two of Regathering Together, and we're in the middle of this series that we're calling Can't Stop. Okay, we're going to do that again. Can't Stop. There we go. That's much better. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. We're going to be in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 19. So if you have a Bible, turn there. The words will be on the screen as well. But the entire book of Hebrews, Hebrews is an interesting book because it is a letter that a church leader wrote to a bunch of Jewish Christians. But as it's a letter, it's also written in the form of a sermon. And so there are moments where the person writing is teaching, and at the same time there are moments where they go from teaching to preaching or to exhorting. And the entire encouragement in the book of Hebrews was about these Jewish Christians who were considering leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. Now the reason, we don't know 100% why, but they were suffering some sort of persecution because they were following Jesus. And so they're thinking to themselves, you know what, maybe it would be easier, it would be better if we just went back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them, reminding them, saying, listen, why would you go back to Judaism when you have the better thing in Jesus? Jesus is the better thing. There's no reason to go back. And so that kind of sets the stage. If you've missed any of this series, if you go to our new website, vcmvmt.com, you're going to find all of our sermon resources, including an introduction to the book of Hebrews as well. Last week, here's what we talked about. Christ's perfect sacrifice has provided a perfect holiness. We're continuing that idea starting in verse 19. One of the things that we're going to come up against in this section of Scripture is a warning in the book of Hebrews. We've, we've seen some of these as we've been preaching through this book, but in the book of Hebrews, there are five warnings given to these Christians. Now, here's what I want you to think about. When we, when we read these warnings or we think about God warning us, I think naturally we're inclined to think, man, God must be out to get me. Even if you don't know the warnings, even if you're not even, if you've never read the Bible before, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, I think a lot of us tend to think about God as this. He's mean, he's vengeful, and he's spiteful. He's out to get me, right? You think about the kid with the magnifying glass burning the ants and thinking, that's God. If I, miss, if I make a misstep, if I do a miscue, God's going to get me. And what I want us to think about this morning is this reality. What if we're wrong? What, what if God's actually not like that at all? What if God's actually a loving, 
gracious, and patient father encouraging his children. The last song we just sang, you know, that our entire satisfaction would be found in God. In you I am satisfied. What, what if that's actually God's desire? What if that's God's intention? So let's look at Hebrews 10. We're going to start just by reading verses 19 through 25. Let's read it together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's three things in this passage that I want you to see. And from this first section, the first thing is this. Be encouraged. That's what the author is doing right up front in these first few verses. He's trying to encourage the audience. He's trying to encourage these Christians. And he's encouraging them with three things. But first, what I want you to notice is in verses 19 through 21. He's getting at why they are to be encouraged. And what he's doing is he's recapping everything he has said from Hebrews 3, verse 1, to Hebrews 10, verse 18. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed it because every week I'm preparing and preaching. But the book of Hebrews has gotten pretty repetitive. Some of you are like, man, are we, we talk about the same thing every week? Does Dustin preach different sermons every week? Because the author is repeating over and over and over this same truth. And this is it. Jesus is our better high priest of a better covenant. Now, if you have parents, if you remember being a kid, or if you are a parent, then you remember how many times your parents had to say something to you over and over and over again to get it. I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell my kids, put your dishes in the sink, put your dishes in the sink, put your dishes in the sink, right? The point of repetition is for it to sink in, for you to get it, and that's what he's getting at. So the foundation of being encouraged is that Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant. Therefore, we're encouraged to do this. Number one, we're encouraged to draw near. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. Faith. Now, keep in mind faith because we're going to talk about some other things. We're encouraged to draw near. What does it mean to draw near? To approach God boldly, confidently, joyfully. I shared this last week. But you don't approach boldly a complete stranger. Most of us don't anyway. Some of you, you know, you're outside the box a little bit and you're uh, one of those extroverts that you know no stranger. But most of us, when we see a stranger, what do we think? Stranger danger. <laughs> right? I mean, at least that's what I tell my kids. So we're not going to approach and draw near boldly to a stranger, but we are going to draw near to, we are going to approach someone that we're in relationship with. Why? Because we know them. 
And the reason that the author is encouraging them to draw near is because in Christ, they have a relationship with God. Therefore, they can draw near to God. They shouldn't be afraid to draw near to God. And how should they draw near? In what? What was that word that we just said together? Faith. We're going to see, again, some other words. We can draw near in faith because we have full assurance. Not assurance that we've done something, but that Christ has done something that allows us to draw near. Why can we draw near? The blood of Christ has spiritually cleansed us. Look at the middle of verse 22. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. That image is Old Testament sacrificial image, but the point is that Jesus' blood has cleansed us. But he goes on and he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it's not only that the blood of Christ has spiritually cleansed us, but he's referring now back to the moment that these people were baptized. That the water of baptism has physically signified our spiritual cleansing. In the New Testament, you would have not met a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who had not been baptized. Because the moment that they were ready to follow Jesus was the moment they would get baptized. Why? Because baptism is that moment of public confession. Where before God and before everybody watching, you are professing faith in Jesus publicly. So we draw near to God because of the work of Jesus on our behalf but we're encouraged not only to draw near but also to hold fast look at verse 23 let us hold fast the confession of our what we talked about faith now hope do you know what's coming next love faith hope and love we hold fast to our confession what's our confession That Jesus is our Lord and Savior. In the early church, at the very beginning of the Christian movement, the most basic confession that the Christians would make is that Jesus is Lord and Savior, which went back to what? The gospel. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus lived a perfect life and went to the cross for our sins, dying on our behalf, in our place, that we might have forgiveness. And then resurrecting from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell, our confession we're to hold fast to. Why? Not because of, what, of, of us confessing, but because of what we're confessing to. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're encouraged to draw near, we're encouraged to hold fast. Lastly, verses 24 through 25, we're encouraged to stir up what are we encouraged to stir up one another to what love faith hope love the three virtues of christianity faith hope and love that's what paul talks about in first corinthians 13 faith hope and love christians the reason he tells us that we are to stir one another up to love is because from genesis to revelation christians are to be characterized by love why because god himself is love so we're to be characterized by love we're to stir one another up to love others and to love god one of the things that i think about right now We've talked about it every week. Everything going on in our world, 
regarding all the racial tension and racism. And I, I think about, like, what are we doing to stir one another up to love our black brothers and sisters? And here's the incredible thing for me. One of the things Mark Anthony Thomas, our music arts director, and I, we've been having a ton of conversations about this. And I've been learning from him, and he's been stirring me up to, to know how to love my black brothers and sisters, people who are different than me. And one of the ways that I've been encouraged to, to stir one another up to love, the ways he's encouraged me and I'm trying to stir others up is, what can I do better to love my black brothers and sisters? What can I do better to love people of color? And I've, I've thought about some of these things. And this is just one application of how we stir one another up to love. Things like this, hating and standing against racism. I mean, for some of us, that might seem obvious, but in our day and age, it's not, right? So we stir one another up that we would hate and stand against racism. We empathize and learn from our black brothers and sisters. I recognize that I have a limited perspective as a white male. And if I truly want to understand what my brothers and sisters in Christ who are of a different color believe and think and feel and have experienced, I need to empathize and learn from them. Lastly, I need to work to foster a church where people of color don't just attend, but they feel at home with family. This is just one way that we begin to think about how do we stir one another up to love and good works. And so we stir one another up to faith, hope, and love. How do we do that? What does the author say at the end of, or at the beginning of verse 20, 25? Not neglecting to meet together. Now what he's getting at is there were Christians in this church who were considering, beginning to say, you know what, we're just, we're just going to stop meeting. And, and what the author is getting at is, listen, the only way that you can stir one another up to love and good works is to be in relationship with other Christians. The point is not that you're at every single gathering, every single group, every single serving opportunity. The point is not that you're filling your time with everything Vintage Church is doing, Right? That's not the point. But the point is that you're so invested in the local church that they're family. And that you're so invested that you have relationships with people that if you were to stop coming, everybody would be like, hey, where is so-and-so? Or I wonder what's going on with so-and-so. And if you stopped coming, there would be no opportunity for someone else in your life to stir you up to love and good works, and there would be no opportunity for you to stir that other person up to love and good works. And so what, part of what the author is getting at is that we've got to be able to meet one another, we've got to be able to see one another, we've got to know things about one another in order to be able to stir one another up to love and good works. So we're to be encouraged to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir up. Now the question is, why are we encouraged to do those things? Let's look at verses 26 through 31. He says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow, that escalated quickly, right? I mean, you're reading all of that and you're like, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged. And then it's like, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And part of why he's encouraging them, because at the same time, the second thing that I want you to see is he wants us to be warned. He wants us to be warned of what happens if we do something. And the warning is, listen, don't fall away from Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus. Now that's not a new warning from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews until now, until the end of the book. It's going to be that repetitive warning. Do not fall away. Do not turn away. Do not leave Jesus. Because they were thinking about that. And the way that he describes it is he says, don't go on deliberately sinning. So what does it mean to go on sinning Deliberately, one commentator says it like this, it's a conscious expression of an attitude that displays contempt for God. So to put it very simply, to deliberately sin is to ultimately reject the Christian faith and walk away from Jesus. Now listen, here's the other thing. There's a way in order there's a way to keep reli- living religiously and yet still walk away from Jesus. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I'm, one of the one of the things that Jesus that Jesus demands of us is absolute worship of him. And if you go on sinning deliberately, what I mean by that is not Sinning in such a way that you commit one sin here, one sin there. But one of the things about sin is it can also become habitual. Where it's a pattern of life, it becomes a part of who you are. If you go on sinning habitually and nothing ever bothers you, nothing ever concerns you, you should be concerned. Because God wants your full devotion. That song we sing, In you I am satisfied when we choose to go on sinning deliberately whether we're intentionally saying god i'm walking away i'm done or we say god i want you but i want what i want this too i want that other relationship or i want that sin in my life or i want that drug or i want to lie all of the time or you name it i want that other god what we're what we're saying is is like no i don't really want god i want god on my terms I shared this Thursday night, and I don't know if everybody liked it, but it's like me basically going to my wife and saying, hey, would you care if I had two other ladies with me all the time? Some of you laugh. I'd be in big trouble. Yeah. Why? Because 13 years ago when I got married and I stood on an altar and I made vows to my wife, I vowed to be with her and her alone, faithful to her. So I can't just rewrite the relationship that I've committed to with my wife. And, and here's the crazy thing. We think, I mean, we think God is different. 
But God's not different. God says, no, listen, if you want me, it's me alone that you're going to have. And you're going to find satisfaction in me alone. So we don't go on sinning deliberately. And here's the crazy thing about it. God, we, we might think that like, man, God is so like, he, he got his finger on me. He's keeping me down. Why can't I just live in freedom? But, but here's the thing about God. God knows what's best for us. Because he's our creator. And so he knows if we go chasing after all of these other things, if we leave other things or we try to keep him on the side but do what we want, he knows that that will not lead to our satisfaction. He knows that will not lead to our fulfillment. God knows what's best for us. And in Hebrews, that's what the author is trying to remind these Christians, and what he's trying to remind us about. Listen, there's no reason to turn back from Jesus. You have found Jesus, and it's what's best for you because it's what God wants for you. Don't go looking for satisfaction anywhere else. That's what the warning is about. And the warning shouldn't be seen as like, man, God is so mean and vengeful and angry. Listen, I have two kids. My son, Gabe, is eight. My daughter, Emily, is five. And if you... If you saw them go off into the street and play dodgeball with cars, and I was just standing there not saying anything to them, what would you think about, about me as a parent? Wow. <laughs> so if you think me warning my kids to not do something that could kill them is good parenting, perhaps we should look at the warnings of God as Good parenting, as loving, gracious, merciful. Recently, I read a book, it's called Gentle and Lowly. And in the book, the author paints this picture about uh, who God really is. And I, I want to read this excerpt for you because I think this is, this is how we tend to think about God. And, and what he's trying to do is change our thinking about God. He says this, he says, not once... Are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy? His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. There's, a, there's another place that he references in this book in Exodus 20. And there's in one of the commandments in, in uh, Exodus 20 verse 4. I want to read this to you. It's not on the screen, but just listen and hear these words. God says this to the people of Israel. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow, you shall not bow down to them. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, hear this statement. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Does that sit well with anybody? God, uh, it's not my kid's fault that I'm a terrible person, right? That was sarcasm, by the way. Keep, let's keep reading. Verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands. Of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
I can't tell you how many times I've read that passage. And the thing that I've always missed is the comparison between judging sin and his steadfast love. Judging sin three to four generations. And we've been talking about this. God is perfect, holy, loving, so he has to judge sin. A holy, perfect God cannot stand next to sin. And we look at that and we're like, man, God, you would judge sin from three to four generations? But then if we, we fail to miss what he says just another verse later, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I don't know about you, but thousands is more than three to four generations. And that's what I want us to see here is this, this warning is not God is angry, vengeful, and ready to smite, smite me, but he's a loving, gracious, merciful God who wants our best. So we're encouraged, we're warned. Let's look at verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and he quotes scripture, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have what? Faith and preserve their souls. We're encouraged, we're warned. The last thing that I want you to see is that we're to be confident. We're to be confident. Number one, to persevere until the end. In, this, in these few verses, what we immediately see is that whatever has been happening to these Christians, it's not been good. They've been ridiculed for their faith. They've literally lost things. People have taken things from them because they follow Jesus. They've been suffering. And, and part of what he's getting at is, listen, the reason you're to persevere to the end is because up to this point, you've already endured so much. So why quit now? I mean, it's like running a race, right? If you get to the three-quarter mark of the race, why do you stop now? I run in my neighborhood. I live around this golf course, and it's 2.3 miles around that golf course. And I know for runners, that's like nothing. But for this guy, that's a lot. I'm five, six and a half. That half inch counts. But I have really short legs. And, and so it takes me forever to get anywhere, right? So... I run around this golf course, and almost every time I want to quit halfway. I get to the mile mark, and I'm like, I'm just done. Like, I've been running for nine and a half, ten minutes. It's hot out. My legs hurt. My lungs hurt. I'm done. I don't want to run. But, I mean, I'm halfway around the course. So I could stop running and walk the rest of it. But if I walk the rest of it, it's going to take me 
you know, double the time to get back to my house. Or I can just suck it up and start running and finish. And the, the point that the author is trying to make is like, listen, when you've run three quarters of the, of the race, why are you going to stop? Persevere till the end. See it through. We're confident to persevere until the end, but lastly, we're confident to receive our reward. What he's getting at in these few verses here is that perseverance leads to the reward. Now here, I get it. In our culture, we're all about those participation trophies, right? I hate those things. I mean, why do you get a trophy for just showing up? I mean, when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. You either won or you lost. If you lost, you didn't get anything, right? <laughs> That's kind of, you guys, it's okay. It's, I know it's Sunday morning. You can laugh. What the author is getting at is, listen, you don't get a reward unless you finish the race. And for us in the Christian faith, that's exactly what he's getting at. And what he's saying is, listen, if you want your reward, you finish the race you started. And the reward for us is, this is the way that he describes it, some of the language that he uses. It's a better and abiding possession. It's a great reward. It's what is promised. What's that reward? It's eternal salvation with God. It's being able to, for all eternity, drawing near to God, being in relationship with God. And here's the thing, right? If, all, if our satisfaction is found in God alone, then what will we want for all of eternity? God, right? We would want God. Because if we started looking around to everything else in our life and say, man, I wish I had that, and I like that, and I like that, but we don't have the ultimate thing, there's no satisfaction. I mean, it's, a, it's like having a meal, but not having the meal, but having all of your favorite condiments for the meal at your, at your hands. I mean, who wants mayo when they can't have a hamburger with it, right? How many mayo fans? Not enough of you. I love mayo. So the, the point is finish the race to receive your reward, which is found in God alone. Total satisfaction. Now, before you start thinking, well, this, I've, got a, I've got a lot of things to do, why can we be confident? We're confident because of what he says at the very beginning of this passage. We're confident because of Jesus. Our confidence does not come in the fact that we're able to persevere till the end. It doesn't come in the fact that we're able to heed God's warning. It's not because we're able to take the encouragements and live them out. We're able to do all of those things, but everything that he says in verses 19 through 39 is because of Jesus. Because we have a better high priest, because we have a high priest who is perfect, because we have a high priest who has went to the cross and died for our sins, because we have a high priest who's resurrected from the grave. Everything that we are doing and able to do and will do is because of Jesus. Amen? Because of Jesus. So because of Jesus, don't turn away. 
but be encouraged to persevere until you receive your reward. Because of Jesus. Let's find our ultimate satisfaction in Jesus alone. Nothing else. No one else. Because Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And despite how we might feel sometimes, God, that you're against us or that you're ready to get us, God, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus, God, and I pray right now in this moment, God, that we would take time to respond to you. For some of us, it's recognizing your love for us for the very first time. For some of us, God, it might be responding to that love in praise, God, thanking you for who you are. God, taking this opportunity to draw near to you right now. God, however we respond, God, may we do it with full hearts. With whole hearts, God. So we love you and we thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.